Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Phil Kraus Survival Podcast. This podcast is sponsored to you by Killcliff.com. Oh, yeah. Killcliff.com. Uh, oh, that's I... George, everybody. Hey, guys. Uh, yeah, Killcliff, man. I'll tell you what. They have those great all-natural energy drinks. They have ones for your little pre-workout, which is the Ignite. They got the During, which is the Endure. And they got at the end, when you're all done sweating and working hard, the Recover. And they have that special CBD recovers as well. I know uh, we had them in Why stock. Why are you breathing so hard, man? I'm sick. I'm like, my lungs are full of fluid. Let me take my over. Killcliff.com, Navy SEAL Foundation. <laughs> if you guys want to save uh, 10%, use Survival10 and save 10% Killcliff.com. Also, Integral Group, IntegralDefenseGroup.com. Sorry, that's a tongue twister. That is. Integral, Integral def, DefenseGroup.com. If you guys have seen, number one, if you're not a, uh, a member of our closed Facebook page, you should be. It's Prepped Space EDC. Prepped Space EDC. Just go to Facebook group pages, put that in the search browser, and you'll be able to get access, and I'll let you guys in. Um, that's where we have everything about EDC, guns, the list goes on. We People, I just saw a booty pic from some dude <laughs> this morning, and I was like, okay, like, okay, okay. He said, Phil and Cheeky, and it was him and a thong. I was okay. okay. Uh, I'm okay with that. I'm not going to moderate that. Nope. Um, so if you guys are interested, uh, check that out. But also, we just did a YouTube video on the P320X carry. First time I shot a SIG. I'm not paid by SIG, I swear to you. I wish I was paid by SIG. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, but the guy, some guy reached out to me and said, hey, we do custom stippling. I said, let me see it. And then I was like in shock because it was black multicam. And the, the cool thing about the modularity of a SIG is the new SIGs, you could basically do the stippling and they could send it to you direct. You don't have to send your gun in. Mm-hmm. And it, that's a big pain in the butt, man, to do any custom work on a gun. These guys send it direct, and you guys could use Philcraft one word to save 10% on any order at integraldefensegroup.com. I recommend the P320X carry um, and any grips. Uh, I believe they do all the grips. Yeah, I'll, I'll co sign that too, as well. I mean, I. You like that? Yeah. That, that your gun is, looks so good. It, it looks awesome. It's, man. Yeah. I can't wait to get a red dot optic on it, too. I'm going to get one of them on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do make holsters for those SIG X320 carries. Um, I said X32 carry. It's 320, P320X carries go. on PhilCraftSurvival.com. And you guys can use Mike for 10% off. I'm just going to throw it out there. Yep. Uh, oh, you ain't going to try to over... No, okay, I'm, okay, I'm going cool. to let you have this one. All right, man. Also, we're sponsored by BCM, Bravo Company Manufacturing. We are now dealers for BCM, which is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the thing is, if you want any any uppers, because we're not doing the FFL thing yet, but if you want uppers and stuff from us, we don't, we're not going to advertise it yet, but you guys uh-huh. can contact us at george at philcrosssurvival.com. <laughs> Whatever yeah. you want. Or, uh, or info at philcrosssurvival.com. Just go with George. Or George, it's fine. Use George. Um, also, Bravo Company Manufacturing, big partner of ours. Uh, make sure you guys support those guys. John Chang, uh, marketing guy for, for uh, BCM, is a great dude. We just shot a video out here in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys can check him out at blackpowderredearth.com as well as his social media. The best graphic novels on covert action, special operations, and contract work. It's it's awesome. I mean, I'm not a comic book nerd, but graphic novel-wise, because I got every single issue of that, um, make sure you check Black Powder Red Earth out. Hey, also, guys, uh, we are sponsored by... CaseyHighlights.com. Uh, so... <laughs> You always do this to me, and I like I know, I know, go I blank. 
But no, uh, Casey Highlights, uh, they're a, a lighting company, light bars, uh, spotlights, anything you need, like rock lights, anything like that. Mike's got his uh, his Dodge at the Summit Jeep right now, or Summit, Summit Off-Road, Off-Road right now. Yeah. And he got this sick light bar Are on it. Are you jealous? Yeah, I am. Because I, I want, well, I don't, I'm a little jealous, but I can't wait to get my uh, Land Cruiser because I want that classic the classic uh, round lights on the top. So if I get this Porsche rally car and Ooh. I build it out, I want the Casey, the quad, they have a quad pod. Yep. I want Casey highlights and the smiley faces. Yes. The covers. Yes. I have them next door. Yep. I have them from a buddy, but I want to get those uh, in the quad pod. That'd be cool. Oh, that'd be dope. That's yeah. sick. Iconic company, small business. Yep. 50 um, years in the, in the, in business this year. So small business turned big business, but still family owned, which yes, I it love. Is. And you guys can check them out. Caseyhighlights.com and use uh, Fieldcraft to save 10%. Fieldcraft, one word, you save 10%. Also, this podcast is sponsored by TriarchSystems.com. T-R-I-A-R-C Systems.com. That Tri-11. What, what can I say? <sighs> that highlight video I did, I just, that, that's not, uh, there's no speeding up that video. That no. gun shoots that fast. Yep. I'm fast too, but you know. I, yeah, you got that good trigger finger, you know what I'm saying? Ooh. <laughs> you guys could use uh, Philcraft one word to save 5% on any build at TriarchSystems.com. Make sure you check out their uh, their short carbines. I, yep. I like their, we have their, uh, it was at 10.5. I have a 14.5. You just wanted to be different, man. I did. I didn't want, you know, I, everyone had the folding stocks and everything. I just wanted to be a nice 14.5 carbine and it shoots very well. It's it one does. of my favorites. It is one. It's one of my favorites as well. Yeah. Um, also, hey, this podcast, we're talking about coronavirus. We're leading in this uh, podcast and we wanted to talk to a subject matter expert named Jeff Hogan. He is a psychologist, PhD, um, but also has an undergraduate studies in uh, microbiology and a whole bunch of things mm-hmm. related to, look, he's got a, he's, he's a first responder in Washington state where this stuff is taking place. But he's one of the smartest dudes I know, and he he wrote a paper and page about resilience and and the response necessary for for best practice as you individuals, civilians, first responders, military, and how you guys should react. And you know this coronavirus, a lot of people are going back and forth. Like you shouldn't be prepping, you should be doing this and that. Look, let's just take the education. That's it. Listen to the facts, mm-hmm. and then we'll get to the recommendations afterwards. Yep. Exactly. And that's all it is. Just listen to what he has to say and make your own uh, decision from there. All right, man. Let's kick it off. Jeff Hogan on the podcast. Jeff, thanks for being on the podcast, man, and taking the time. Hey, Mike. Thanks for uh, having me on again. I really appreciate all the the, um, effort and I love talking about this stuff. Yeah. You know, it it took us a while uh, as far as you know, getting a timeline lined out, but it things change. Things are changing so rapidly, and even in the 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 timeline of the original documents and education you were giving me, there's been so many updates. So it's such a, yeah. a rapid evolving situation. But um, you know, for guys who don't know Jeff or remember Jeff, Jeff and I and I, I Kurt at one point talked about resiliency uh, as it related to post traumatic stress and everything else because you were getting finishing up your residency here in Prescott, correct? Correct. And then and then you winded up moving back to Washington State. Let let's do this, man, because you know, people haven't who are just turning this, tuning into this and haven't heard that episode. Uh, why don't you give a, a point of reference for your background and kind of your expertise when it comes to uh, your scope and also to what we're dealing with now with the coronavirus? 
Uh, yeah, sure. So <clears throat> previous to doing what I do now, you know, I did about eight years in the military, both uh, mostly in the Coast Guard, working with the Navy um, as a diver and EMT and uh, a little bit of flight and dive medicine, some law enforcement work. And unfortunately, I got out, uh, I got hurt, got out and uh, went back to school, kind of, I did my pre-med uh, human biology with a minor in in uh, biochemistry and then also in health psychology, which I, I don't recommend ever anybody doing that crap. Um, <laughs> um, and then, but I decided to go the clinical psych route. I had some really good mentors and, and uh, advisors, and I really kind of really wanted to investigate the connection between the brain and the body and how that whole thing worked in a really, really um, humanistic fashion. So I got my master's in science and clinical psych. And then uh, my PhD in clinical psychology with an emphasis in uh, uh, neurobehavior. And now I specialize in um, trauma, kind of the whole trauma timeline, but I'm really more positively oriented. So I'm really interested in, in resilience, grit, flourishing, and flow as it, as it pertains to organization. And so now, <clears throat> you know, for the last five years, I've been uh, working with and for um, Lacey Fire Department. Um, as they're, it, it kind of started off clinical, but now it's really more operational. So I'm designing training, uh, onboarding methods. So, you know, in, incorporating learning psychology into how we train people, incorporating resilience as far as performance and grit and flourishing goes. And so sort of taking all that data and sort of uh, incorporating it into everyday life as far as our first responders go. Uh, and before that, while I was going to school, I also did, uh, you know, while I was doing my undergrad with all five minutes that I had of free time, <laughs> I, ha- I spent um, five years um, working in various <coughs> um, uh, amounts at a microbiology lab, both academic and clinical at Evergreen Hospital, which was which just happened to be ground zero for the Washington um, deaths and cases that came across. And so I had a direct line of communication with lab director there and we just kind of we got to work that's amazing you know i i'm very careful and actually jeff keeps me in line with how i message because i'm not an expert in messaging and there's a thin line between you know the the message which could be emotionally based but not tied to science and data and and real accurate information versus kind of spinning off into opinions and then uh, you know, he, he's, he spent some time mentoring me between the two because, you know, for Philcraft Survival's perspective as, as the company that I own, I always want Philcraft to be uh, really, truly unbiased when it comes to things like this. When, when it comes to uh, what's the current situation on the ground, what are best practices and best recommendations based, from the, based on the expert's recommendation, not based on my counterterrorism experience, but based on the experts that are on the ground – and then more so in how we disseminate that, and that's that's one of the reason I uh, reasons I reached out to Jeff to have him on the podcast because not only is he a subject matter expert in these kind of things, but he just so happens to be at ground zero where this is taking place. Uh, that you know the the really the epicenter of the biggest uh, number of casualties in the United States uh, here in Washington. So, Jeff, can you outline for us? Kind of, I guess, when this start, this kicked off in Washington State, your you know your relationship uh, d- during this time uh, to the hospital and to the the region, and then how it's kind of manifested itself till till today. 
Yeah, um, I, just to just to sort of reinforce what you kind of uh, prefaced as far as our relationship has been for the last, you know, two or three years. Uh, again, Mike, I think that you and I are, you know, we kind of model this across multiple disciplines that in reality, the differences between you and I are not that great. Uh, we have far more similarities than we do differences. And we can get so much more done when you and I can sit and have an adult conversation and sort of come to an agreement where you step up to meet me and I step up to meet you on common ground. That's when we get things done. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be, you know, that generalized, but, you know, you know, as we keep sort of building this thing, this is, this is how we get to an actionable, you know, object off of objective data, actionable Intel to get, you know, whether it be survival or, or, um, achievement, whatever it is that we're looking for, this is how we do it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so around Saturday, you know, we've been tracking the, the, uh, COVID, um, uh, progress, you know, we'd been tracking it for a little while, but Saturday it became clear that it, it you know, it's, it's now in our backyard. And then Sunday night <clears throat> we found out all, we had, you know, local Seattle residents, uh, who had passed away from the infection and all of a sudden the machine starts and what the hysteria started, you know, this sort of oh my God, we're all going to die. You know, this infection rate is so great. And then we're getting all this data from CDC and uh, the World Health Organization that was sort of congruent, but they're not all the same. And then we also had, and what, I, you know, being the, being the scientist, I kind of shifted really quickly into a sort of science officer position, which uh, my fire department is just super, super dynamic in that I, I can just shift to what we see the need to be at that time. And just luckily I have the background to kind of move across dimensions like that. Um, <clears throat> so what I did, Mike, was I started pulling from uh, evidence-based sources, you know, so like our, our research databases and I just start pulling and most of them are sourced from China, but they're translated and they're sort of fast tracking this, this data to pull out. And so I just started pulling all the actual um corroborated data that we could build an accurate perception on. And so as I started to do that, you know, the, the, the emergency medical services are just, unfortunately, uh, you know, we had some local firefighters get caught unawares, not of any fault of their own, but unfortunately, you know, they got quarantined and then, Oh, now, now it's real, right? Now we have to sort of figure out how we're going to do this. And we sort of arranged clinical science and academic science in a way. And, and 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 uh, sort of uh, collaborating with public health and the CDC who are here uh, to sort of how do we do this? How do we? The hospitals are one thing which we don't have a whole lot of intel on, um, but a little bit. Uh, but it was more like we're sending out fire EMS to these houses. Now, what does that mean for us? How how much of our, are we at risk? How much are our patient at risk? What's the accurate scope of this disease process? And so we just started pulling in data, Mike, just, it was just, you know, it was, it was morning to night, wake up, work, go to sleep, wake up, work. And it was just because this, uh, our department and most of our neighboring departments are so keyed up on how would we serve our public while protecting ourselves and protecting our public. So that's really how this whole thing started. Yeah, that's a huge consideration. And, and I never really thought about it until we started chatting how how big of a response 
uh, that you would have to kick off in giving the assurances and giving the education and giving the information to create the protocols to protect your guys? Because, I mean, if you think about it, every person who responds and reacts to somebody who potentially has the the infection or the the virus then all of a sudden now we just quadrupled or depending on how many first responders responded we've just taken taken out an action arm in first response because of the way that we potentially re- responded in the first place because this this unlike you know the common flu where you could probably get away with some some, some of the stuff that you typically do um, it it seems, and this is just perception wise, based on what I'm saying, it just seems more adaptive, or it just seems um, like people who are in the vicinity of those people are exposed, um, as opposed to like when I had H1N1 last uh, two months ago, my nurse didn't even have a mask on, and yeah. I I imagine that the the protocol because it's like one kid, one school, the school gets quarantined, one one yeah. person one company, the company gets quarantined or the company shuts its doors. So it seems like it's very volatile in the sense that kind of society structure, our current kind of community structure could be easily disrupted, even if the virus itself isn't that, um, uh, you know, I would say that infectious or that big of a deal, it's still affecting the community in a lot of adverse ways. Absolutely. You know, and, and, uh, the the reality is, is like if you really take a look at the stati- the statistics, even though they're kind of, you know, they're ch- they're dynamic and changing by the hour, you know, we know our risk groups, right? The sixty and above, right? Mm-hmm. The the immunocompromised, and especially with those people who have respiratory issues or immunodeficiency uh, issues or lifelong smokers. So what we did find out was that most of those folks that are making up the fatalities in China happen to be ma- older males that had been smoking chronically since they were younger. That's a cultural thing, right? Yep. And so, you know, taking a look at that and really understanding that, but you're right. Like what happens if we get an infection in our department, all of a sudden we lose a whole company of firefighters. What does that do to our response? Because the reality is that yes, maybe the COVID-19 disease in and of itself isn't necessarily all that dangerous, but you see the response. The response is we're we're having to butt up against, well, how many people can we afford to lose uh, or just even to a mild cold? Because it's not like we can bring it to the public or else we're just typhoid Mary. We just multiplied ourselves, right, by, mm-hmm. you know, 100 people, you know, and so it's not necessarily the disease process, the mortal- mortality rate, right? What it is is EMS cannot afford to lose people because our our response doesn't change. We are the flu season, you know, this this year this season's strain of flu, it has a higher mortality and morbidity rate than last season's. That's not in it, it, that's not uh in place of it's an addition to the coronavirus, right? We're we're handling all the things, not just one thing. And so how do you how do you balance that and not completely infect your community because where do firefighters go most of the time? 75% of our calls are medical. The vast, vast majority of those calls are just sort of elderly or behavioral calls. So we need to really, really pay attention to that. How, how did the situation in Washington State unfold? I, I know bits and pieces because the media has reported that as such, but I kind of don't yeah. have a good sense of what, what took place. Can you, can you uh, talk to us about that? 
<clears throat> I can only talk to you about how, how we received that information, right? And, and we kind of received it in bits and pieces. Um, but I, all, all that I know is that uh, we, as soon as we started reporting deaths and infections, the uh, hospitals and EMS immediately in a grand scale started, started to shift gears. And while the reality is, is that um, we have those precautions sort of built into the system, right? Flu precautions, uh, respiratory distress uh, precautions. We have those things. We haven't been necessarily following them so much. Like the example that you gave when you had H1N1, the nurse wasn't even masked up, right? Mm -hmm. um, we, sometimes we get lax in what we do and, and you know, that's problematic. It's right now. Uh, and so it, it was very difficult to see how this spread largely because, you know, if you can Mike, if you, it, it, we can track certain things, but the, the, the danger, it seems like the danger with this particular pathogen isn't the ones that we can track and that are up front. It's because there's such a, and yeah, I'm going to use a, a, a military uh, metaphor. It's the clandestine forces, right? It's, it's the people who have mild to moderate symptoms and maybe may not even notice that they're sick may not even really care. And then they spread it to two to three people. And then those two to three people spread it to two to three more people. And it's not, you know, the general public, that's the problem. It's, it's our immunocompromise. And so when we started to hear about that, I mean, that's just basically how it really kind of kicked off, dude. Is that, is that King, was it King County? Is, or is yeah, that, that yeah. was King County. Yep. And then, and then you had, there's a, that entire fire department that got quarantined, did did they lock the doors on them and just say, hey, we're going to monitor you guys? And then how did that affect the, the the first responders, or did you have guys covering down? No, yeah, that's yeah, okay, yeah, definitely. Let's let's hit that. So um, I think that is a bit of a misconception. So uh, it, it it was one station, so about twenty firefighters, and public health gave them the option. As far as the information that we have, public health gave them the option to either isolate in the station or isolate at home. And so the you know there's where we have isolation and quarantine. Quarantine is when you sort of either you sort of uh, isolate when you're asymptomatic because you're suspected of carrying or you possibly are carrying, but you're not ill. Isolation is when you are symptomatic and we do know that you have the infection. And typically those are, are most people. Public health is advising uh, that if you if you are infected, uh, okay, let's go isolate. Right. If we don't know if you are, we might have to quarantine. But most people are isolating at home because it's really just a mild to moderate influenza-like virus. Even it's so, even though it's corona, so it's more more related to the common cold. It's just you know it's like a mild to moderate flu. And so most of those folks uh, chose to either isolate at home or isolate in, in the station. Okay. And is that I've I've heard this recently that the CDC allows each individual. I don't know if you call it district area, like city, town, or state, to determine their own requirements for quarantine unless it becomes obviously like a pandemic. It, it, it's a real serious issue. Meaning each, depending on what state you're in, will kind of determine whether or not you're going to get quarantine as a protocol versus being in another city or state. That That is my understanding as well. Um, and, you know, we are making uh, every effort to sort of uh, you know, make even sort of isolated uh, areas that if if our folks do become infected, that we have a place to isolate, but that is comfortable. You know, we have food, water, all those things. I um, mean, so it's not really this sort of 
big panic situation that you're going to be quarantined in the public health and it's going to be this like concentration camp. I get these, these sort of paranoia. It's really just, Oh crap, you're sick. Let's not have you get other people sick. Let's go isolate you. Uh, then, but those with severe presentations, obviously we need to get them definitive care immediately. And that's, this is what we're doing. Yeah. One of the concerns that I have and I, that I've tried to communicate about is, you know, the flu is one thing. It's something that we live with. And, you know, I'll just check in recent CDC stats on this last flu season, which is really aggressive. It could range, you know, the CDC website ranges anywhere from 20 to 45,000. I even saw 57,000 out of the, I believe, 45 million people that were infected, which is a lot. I had it this season for the absolutely for the first time. But, but the way I look at it is when you have something that originated as a novel virus that originated in uh, China, and then it makes its way to the United States in a new form. I, I always like, like you said before, it's 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 running parallel to the flu. So it's yes. like it's like the flu plus everything else. It's not like the flu plus or minus because they somehow merge. And so right. and so when people, I don't know if it's underplaying, but but I I see a lot of people vocalizing. In comparison with the flu, like, hey, you know, the flu killed this many people, so what's the big deal? And I always look at this and go, well, the big deal is it's an addition to, meaning the 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 old ladies and old men inside those those retirement homes or hospices that were just living their life watching Jeopardy and living out the rest of their days until they got sneezed on or came in contact with this virus, they were going to be alive, but now they're dead. And so I... I, I I think people, a lot of the times when it comes to preparedness, focus on just their circumstance. But I, I like to think about my parents. Like my mom uh, and stepfather live in North Carolina, and they have a, a reported case there. And I know my mom's not going to prep. She's not that kind of person to get ahead of it. But I want to, I want her to educate her to ensure that she's taking maybe some extra precautions like washing her hands, et cetera. What are some things that people could do um, just understanding what we know now and maybe even recapping what we actually do know now. So let, let me flip that question uh, back onto you, Mike. So um, if knowing what you know now, right, uh, what kind of precautions are, have you started? So, you know, we can even, we're even kind of moving this into the resiliency portion of this, right? Problem-focused coping. Like you see, you see a broader picture and like we've talked before, man, you do a, such a good job at self-reflection. This is the tough part. As we get data, people, again, you're, you're, you're talking about people who are, you know, comparing to the flu virus or downplaying this thing or and upplaying it, right? Like complete panic, buying cases of water. Like, wait a minute, what are you doing? Um, so what have you shifted from, from the data that you've gotten what have you shifted as far as your behavior goes in regards to the sort of the conceptualization you carry now? I, I think the the biggest thing, which I think is the most important thing, is um, making deliberate decisions to stay away from large groups or large crowds of people, which which is easy for me because my routine doesn't typically take me in large crowds where I'm you know taking public transportation or or just amongst a lot of people. Um, and, and then, I mean, I mean, I know I got H1N1 from a, a 511 survival seminar. Like I had, mm -hmm. I had a hundred people in Las Vegas, all from different locations, all through the U S and after the seminar was over, I had about 40 people 
stop and shake my hand afterwards, including one dude who was hacking. And I was like, oh, remember to wash your hands later. And I probably didn't. Uh, <laughs> the second thing is I found myself consciously washing my hands and being very uh, conscious of my hygiene d- decisions. Like if I'm touching a rail, a knob, I'm going reference to wash your hands now or reference you're shaking hands. So reference to um, do you use hand sanitizer when you get in a car uh, or, you know, I t- dude, I don't know why, but ever since I started thinking about this, I touch my face like a thousand times a day. I mean, just <laughs> constantly in my nose and my mouth. And so I've deliberately stopped uh, touching my face like if I touch my face, I go, you know what? Why are you doing that? Just stay away. So the real, real mild things that I've included in my behavior, um, the prepping, look, I'm a prepper anyway. You know, it's mm-hmm. for me, for me, upgrading to support my family a little bit is just what I do routinely. So it's not like I had to do anything extraordinary. That's just, that's just my, my, my uh, prep game anyway. Uh, so this is the thing that's so perfect, right? taking into account communicable diseases and making small changes to your behavior. And this is, but this requires that sort of painful self-reflection portion that some folks aren't necessarily ready to do all the time. Uh, and what I mean by that is how much do I really know about epidemiology microbiology, virology, uh, and uh, molecular biology? And so can I make definitive conclusions about what I know or should I really kind of remain fluid and dynamic to the situation and take what courses that I can control and leave those things that I can't control, let them work themselves out and act as, a, as if, uh, you know, uh, I, what I can do now. So exactly, you know, being intentional about washing your hands. There's, so we know that it's about a six-foot distance that is considered non-exposure distance from other people. So keeping that six-foot distance, stop shaking everybody's hand during flu season. You know what I mean? It's not a personal thing. It's a, hey, infectious diseases suck. I don't, ain't nobody got time to be sick. Let's bump elbows or something. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, and then there's the, there's the bunch of other resiliency stuff that we can talk about, you know, whenever, uh, to sort of boost your immune system, supplement your diet. And like you said, so that sort of, um, the, uh, reduction of anxiety that comes with being vigilant so that you are prepped. And I know we use the term prepper, but you're just kind of dynamic to a, a, a situation that you really can't. Um, you really can't predict. We have no idea where this is going to go. We have no idea when the next one's going to come. Um, but evidence would suggest that they're going to keep getting more frequent and they're going to keep getting more uh, virulent because our population continues to increase. We keep piling bodies on top of bodies. And you know, being ready to move and be resilient in, in a changing environment, I, you know, I, I have a hard time going, yeah, that's probably not a good idea. Yeah. Do you think... You know, I read your document, which is really fascinating as far as length, because I like how you lie things out in layman's terms, and then yeah. and it's all tied to psychology, right? It's it's the it's the thinking before the action, and one of the things that you you just touched on was uh, the panic and the you know anxiousness or kind of the emotional response. How how can people like? Are you saying that if there's something? that is put out that if you allow that manifestation to dictate or determine your behavior or your actions or inactions, that's when it becomes, I guess, the panic category, right? Like say, so, you know, you would likely 
go to your your best friend's baby shower, and because mm. and because you see the reports and you're spinning things uh, in mm-hmm. a way that that makes you feel better, then you say, "I'm not going to that." Would you consider that like the the panic category of like doing things that you typically wouldn't do when it's not warranted? Yeah. So this is yeah, this is that sort of self reflection piece. So if we can tie this into resilience, right? Like. I'm not sure the the whole um, noticing as you're reading reports and some media. I, I know you've been combing through media, and some of them really word this in a very, you know, like holy shit, what's happening? We're all gonna die type of a format. And going, wait a minute, right? Taking note first and foremost, taking note of your emotional reaction and why you're reacting that way. And our brain and realizing our brain does not like not having answers. I know that's a double negative, but I'm going to go ahead and throw it out there. And so what our brain does is occasionally when we are afraid, A, first you have to recognize that there's a little bit of fear and anxiety associated with that. So that takes a minute that, oh, wait a minute, let me gather more information from sources before I start to react and before I start to spin out of control and going, hey, Maybe I should actually pull data from multiple sources, some good sources, and maybe some sources that I just like, right, into a larger picture. And then you kind of, then you get to see the numbers and go, okay, this is a little bit confusing. Let me reach out to my healthcare professionals, right? So that they might have an entire data set that you're not privy to, to build a more accurate picture of what you need to do versus what you really want to do or what you can do uh, in response to this sort of infectious disease. And so learning how to A, distress tolerance, right? Like I have all these things that I don't know answers for and not letting that distress start to determine your your decision-making process. Note your distress, be okay with your distress and be okay in the gray area because you have other resources. So very, very resilient behavior is you know right adapting small changes according to uh, the data that you're given. The other part of resilient behavior is help seeking. Right, I know that I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a microbiologist, or a virologist, I'm not a physician. Uh, maybe maybe I should ask some questions, right? And sort of you know going to these people asking questions, and that doesn't mean they're always going to be right or have all the information, but you just add it into your understanding. And then sort of uh, working through that and noting your emotions, not being upset about them and not being ashamed of them, but being okay in that gray area and being resilient and being able to move in any direction. Because if you've already made a decision that you know everything there is to know, right? Like this is just the flu. Like, man, that is you've – just, you've just made a conclusion not based on any data, based on complete belief, and you've closed the ability for new information to get to you. And by that time, you might have already been infected or right pass it on to 15 people. Mm, man, that's so informative, man. Because I, I will tell you that like, you personally have had that impact on in my mind and in my life about how I look at things differently. You know, Because like, it's very easy as a declared subject matter expert in anything to just breeze over data and then make an assumption but yep. but there's a huge responsibility in driving assumptions that changes people's behavior, right? Because if I if I go out and I say, hey guys, you need to go out and you need to you know I don't know stockpile antibiotics uh, uh, 120 days worth. 
well, you better believe I'm going to get hundreds of people to get antibiotics exactly. and, then, and then a knee-jerk reaction to certain things. And I've it's changed my perspective in being more careful and even more articulate about how I disseminate information, especially that's especially things that I feel passionate about because I do feel very passionate about all this stuff because I don't like to see people die, especially in the United States. It, you know, I just it's funny. I just read this eleventh person has died in coronavirus. That's not funny, but I I just read the eleventh <laughs> person in uh, Washington State has died, and I just did a, a speaking engagement a couple of days ago. We we're talking about driving and accidents, and 11 teens per day die while driving and texting. And when you look at the two statistics, one one person would look at that and go, well, "What's the big deal? 11 teens die, so 11 people dying from Corona is no big deal either." I think they're both equally big deals, um, and 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 they're completely different considerations for risk mitigation and things that you could do to reduce the number of deaths. Period. Uh, what I think I. I feel like people are missing in this big picture is that, and this is just for my uh, re-educating myself in a lot of this stuff, is that similarly to the 1918-1919 Spanish flu, Mm -hmm. there was a lot of, I guess, disbelief in the country. And there was a lot of negligence on the government side in how we were addressing this because... You know, I, I, this is you know this is hearsay. This is what I heard from historical references. But mm-hmm. the government, because we were in World War One, did not want to incite any kind of surprises or hurt hurting the morale of the country, the nation, because nationalism was very important to hold the support for our actions in World War One. Well, in holding that, they decided not to stop parades, not to stop gatherings, and in fact, I, I heard of one Philadelphia gathering where. Uh, the following day, thousands of people died, uh, and I might be messing up that statistic, maybe hundreds of people died in one instance from people getting infected at this gathering, uh, which I believe was a political gathering, and then they went home, and then it was one of the highest peaks in the days of deaths. And then if, if you look statistically, the casualties in World War I, which most were from infections, um, in, including infectious disease, most of them uh, were were killed that way. One hundred sixteen thousand people died. Americans died in, in World War One. If you look, you know, I guess conversely at the pandemic that affected uh, the people and the populace, which uh, the statistic is twenty to, to the ages twenty to forty years old, and I don't even know the science behind why that would be the case. But six hundred plus thousand people passed away from that. Um, including 195,000 in one month of October of 2018. So I see this kind of thing happening, and I see the reactions, not even reactions, because the the guys, I don't think people in the CDC are overreacting. In fact, a lot of the times I see they're underreacting, but the information they're putting out where they say, this is very serious, we don't know where this is going to go, Um, this could be something serious as a pandemic or a pandemic, then I'm paying attention. Is that... Is that rational? Um, and and what is a kind of a rational line to follow this message, messaging, especially something so novel, so new? That's a really tough question. You know, I, I think you have a great perspective there. You kind of brought in that sort of history piece. Uh, you know, we've done some pretty poor things on the governmental side, you know, back before we really had this sort of infusion of ethics and, and humanity into medicine and research. And 
we've screwed some things up royally in the past, but that doesn't mean that because we've screwed things up royally in the past, that the history is going to repeat itself the same way with the same organization. Right. And so I, I know, you know, when we met with the public health, I know that the epidemiologist that was sort of uh, the, the key point in information, she had been working for two weeks straight with no breaks. So when you tell me that they don't care about us or they don't do this and knowing that just the local fire departments, you know, the training divisions and the administration, they're working around the clock to make sure their people are safe and the community is safe. When you, when I hear that, oh, they don't care, you know, whatever, none of that makes any sense to me because, you know, when you go to hospitals, people are trying to spool up as best they can to protect themselves and protect the community. None of it makes sense. And so rash this sort of idea that that's a bit of an avoidance escape right the you know oh i don't want to deal with the reality that i might be wrong yeah. right my 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 assumptions or what i think is true and sometimes take that people take it like have have taken that so so hard that it's part of their identity right mm. like i'm anti-government so all the government is bad all the time then that is an obstacle to taking in good objective data and making good decisions. And like you said, uh, I, I just really love the way you put that, that, that it, this, my decisions aren't necessarily just about me, right? That, that sure, you go out and get the coronavirus and you'll probably shake it in a week and you'll be fine. You'll barely notice the symptoms, but maybe your mom won't. Or maybe, maybe you come over to my house and see my mom and she's immunocompromised and she gets sick and she dies. And so occasionally we really have this sort of egocentric, narcissistic tendency to make that information all about us mm. rather than a community. And you talk about tribe all the time, all the time, right? And that's super important. And we need to consider – and I, you know, I can't tell anybody who their tribe is and who, they, who it isn't. But we need to really consider at least our, our immediate community as our tribe because my health affects your health and your health affects mine. Oh wow. Yeah, that's that's super important. It's especially when you look how this virus is affecting communities and you know, it's I think about your community and it's I I have lots of friends in that area and they're telling me a whole bunch of stuff like man, it's getting crazy around here, you know, like yeah. stores are shutting down, companies are are shutting the, their doors and then uh you know, whether that's an overreaction or whatever it may be, that they are displacing a, a different kind of vibe in that environment that's completely different than the vibe here in Prescott, Arizona, for example. And so, you know, what I don't want people to do, and I have people in this community who have uh, outright um, criticized us for even talking about preparedness because this is a very conservative area. And so right. they immediately associate what's going on with um, with the spinning of this via the media, the left media in this case, as being a, a way to spin for us to potentially spin a political agenda, which there is none. I mean, I'm not even, I'm so like politically neutral. It's not even crazy. Like if I could just be like, if I just have no say in any politics whatsoever, I would be fine with that because I worked for the government for 20 years. I'm just not interested in that. And, and so me coming out saying preparedness, some people in the conservative community that I live in myself think it's attacking the right. And, and then, then I'm like, how, man, how uneducated or how uh, biased do you have to be to where you, you assume a, a public health risk 
um, via a virus is somehow now a political tool, which I, I, I mean, I'm not surprised it it, it is because it's the government, you know, go figure mm-hmm. politicians use right. um, circumstances to empower themselves. But how do you, how do we find, how do we find the balance in that? Especially when you have every media source kind of putting their own uh, style and aesthetic behind it. No, totally. Right. Like this is, this is, and that's exactly what I was talking about that, about that identity, right? You, you kind of, that, that whole, the, the whole idea that you're not doing something that I believe in. And so you are them and not us, mm. right. That, that, that you can't possibly be working to the same goals and have the same values that I do because you made a decision differently than I did. Mm-hmm. And so uh, like, like I said, that's that sort of resilient piece that when you make those black and white comparisons and we have a tendency to do that, Mike, and, and, you know, I'll never speak illy of my, my military experience. It was some of the best years of my life. However, military does a great job at training you to look at things in black and white. Mm -hmm. It's a very easy way to see the world, but ultimately we, we also know that that is not a resilient position because the world is not black and white. It is millions of shades of gray. And we all find that when we get out of the military. Yeah, <laughs> and it can be very distressing, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me, being resilient in this space is a that long, hard look at yourself and what you actually know about this type of of sort of uh, phenomena. What do you actually know? So then, how can I best get my information? Well, let me start by adding probabilities, right? Science is not is not the whole picture. What we do is we gather evidence to present the best picture possible. But it's never a for sure thing. It's never definitive conclusions. We just we, we gather the most evidence we can because we're not perfect and we present the best picture that we can. And so if we can be resilient and not fall necessarily for the emotional traps that our search engines might generate for us, right? Our search engines are not unbiased engines. They are specifically designed to feed you information that you like to see, not necessarily that is the most accurate and the most robust. So knowing that, right, grabbing data from from relevant sources, and then you know if you do have a friend that is in science and that has access to databases and is a medical professional, let's bounce off, bounce information off each other. Let's have this discussion. Exactly what we're doing here, Mike, is that you have information and understanding and expertise in areas that I don't. I have the same in other areas that you don't, and we start to talk rather than talk together and work together rather than us and them because that is not productive. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you've outlined some of this via this, this idea of resilience in this, in this uh, uh, particular situation. And you've broken that down into like physiological, cognitive, emotional. What are some things that people can do um, to mitigate risk uh, and 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 reinforce their physiological resilience. I, I know one of the first things you have outlined is exercise, and I and when I see that, I look at that and I go, "Well, wow, that applies to everything resilience in life, right? If you want to be if you want to be more resilient, period, you should probably exercise." And then and then you have it outlined in here because um, it, it could be an additional help in this circumstance, right? Absolutely right. Cardiovascular health and and um, uh, lean muscle mass—all these things provide our body additional resources and 
and grit and resilience in order to, to deal with uh, unknown situations, right? It's, you know, there, is, there isn't rocket science behind having uh, special operations, SF, team guys, all, all the sort of top operators to be in ridiculous cardiovascular shape. Mm. That's not rocket science. That is when you are stressed by an outside stressor, be it psychological or physiological, your body responds the same, the same, right? Your heart rate increases, respiratory rate increases, you dump a bunch of glucocorticoids, mineral corticoids, and your your body just starts, your endocrine system just starts going crazy. Well, think about what is the what is the physiological process to deal with that, and that's your heart, right? So your circulatory system, all those things are turning over time. The better shape you're in, the better you're able to deal with both physiological and psychological stress. Um, and, and so you're able to move in any direction you need to, Mike, right? And and while operating, so like a CrossFit or, or you know, running on the treadmill is great, but that environment is static. It always stays the same. It's, it's you know, it's it's climate controlled. Uh, you know, there, there's, you can get food whenever you want. You can stop whenever you want. So really getting yourself, continuously getting yourself out in the nature, having to deal with problem solving, navigation, uh, rain, snow, heat, makes you just so much more resilient all the time, just for life in general. And right, I mean, this is just isn't rocket science, but it still applies here. And exercise also helps boost your immune system. And so, you know, it's just, it's just kind of a no-brainer. I like the one you, you had about the uh, bathing in the sauna or sauna bathing. I, I, yeah. I, I'm actually super interested in this because I, before I even heard it was a thing, which I don't know the, the scientific term, it's thermo something, um, mm-hmm. but uh, I'll let you explain that. But when I started, when I was in special operations as a young SF guy, when I went to the sauna, I would work out in the sauna and I, my, I felt like my cardiovascular system was better. I just felt better overall. And in fact, I, I recently just ordered, it's like the infrared version of it that, that you could sit basically as a single person inside of it because of all mm-hmm. these different benefits that I feel physically that I haven't even tied to science. Right. Um, so this, those, that portion was actually the uh, contribution by Dr. Michelle Kent. So she's a naturopathic physician who we both went to the same undergrad school with. Um, and she did a great job at breaking down the benefits for, of, uh, of that sauna. And it's, it's, it's just, you know, engaging your, uh, thermal regulation. And, um, so, so sort of, uh, resetting your HPA. So your hypothalamus, pituitary adrenal gland, uh, and, and, um, uh, increase in blood flow, cardiac output, sweating, but in, in a very low impact way. And so you're sort of um, inducing uh, the pro- uh, production of uh, heat shock proteins, uh, reduces reactive oxygen speciation and uh, oxidative stress and reducing inflammation. So that's that's sort of the key there. Well, for me, inflammation as, as a direct link to mental Ill- illness and so anything that we can do either by supplementation, nutrition, which is my preferred as far as my perspective goes to reducing inflammation and uh, sauna, et cetera, relaxation, super, super important to reduce inflammation as much as possible. So what, what are some things that you recommend uh, back to that question of what you would do? What are the, what are the things that you've done personally, if, if anything? And then what are the things that you recommend people do and th- with the information that we have right now? 
Yeah. And so I would really kind of continue to monitor the situation and monitor yourself when that situation, meaning as you take in this data that you are being honest with how much you actually know versus how much you think you might not know about the situation, right? Taking from, from uh, reputable, reputable sources and staying in contact with your um, healthcare professionals, but engaging in a exercise, good, solid exercise and away from people, right? We're just kind of also exercising that don't go into crowded spaces right now. It's not nothing. It's not anything to panic about. It's just, you know, Hey, maybe we don't need to go to the museum where everybody touches everything today. Um, you know, like get outside, go for a hike, go climbing, go running. Um, and then also gearing down. So paying attention to stress reduction, uh, techniques like, um, meditation, uh, progressive muscle relaxation, autogenics, uh, whatever you do that relaxes you. And, you know, we had talked about this too, uh, go to the range. If that's very, very, sort of calming and centering for you, that's just going to reduce your sort of stress levels. Whatever you need to do to sort of do that, pay attention doing that on a regular basis, because right now we're all a little bit more vulnerable to those diseases, right? And then paying attention to your nutrition, lots of whole foods, lots of water, low on sugar, because sugar can affect your immune system, and alcohol affects your immune system. Small things, small changes to your behavior. Sleep. Sleep is huge. Mm. 60% of all primary care visits are about sleep disruption. Um, and so we have great data on sleep hygiene. It's not easy. It's not a small change, but getting sleep is super, super important. And almost nobody's getting great sleep, including our kids, man. They're just, they're not getting great sleep. And we really, really need to do a lot better job at, at, at being intentional about our sleep patterns. Um, and maintaining those close ties with your community, you do a great job at sort of encouraging, uh, this sort of tribalism among the people that sort of share the same values. And as, as, as we start to learn it, hopefully we can mature a little bit as far as, you know, the differences between all of us are just not that much that our tribe gets bigger and bigger and bigger and we become more and more collaborative. And so again, we share things instead of fight about them. Um, and so, again, all these resilience pieces, there's a lot to this, but there, these are all these small behavioral changes that can really help out. Like another one might be that if you are starting to uh, experience symptoms, don't panic, wait, <laughs> call your healthcare professional, see if you can set up a lot of systems or setting up free um, telehealth sessions so that you do not call emergency services out from mild to moderate symptoms that you can go in and get isolated or get taken care of first versus sending the fire department or EMS out there. And now we have a much more, a much more technical situation that we have to manage because it can be managed very, very easy from person to provider versus having an intermediary. But if you are experiencing severe symptoms, then you, know, we need to make, you need to make that call. I wanted to before we before we got off here. I wanted to yeah. get get your your perspective on uh, where you see this going in your own community because uh, it you know obviously where you are at versus where I'm at is completely different. Like here, I mean Costco's still got full shelves, but there are people who are paying attention because you know the median age here is 56 years old. I think the yeah. incoming median age is 62. Um, but how? 
how is the circumstance currently, and then where do you see it uh, going? So currently, um, I'm just I'm just super fortunate enough to be in not only my own district, but with a bunch of neighboring districts who really, really are just outstanding professionals who really put the community first. Um, and we are doing everything that we can to institute good tactical measures to get to people that need to be gotten to, give them the treatment that they need and get them the places that they need. Um, and, but right now, you know, we, we front loaded that Mike, once we, once we had heard, you know, it's, it's in, it's in the United States. Oh, okay. Well now it's in Washington. Okay. Now EMS is affected. Okay. That game completely changed. Um, we just front loaded all our time. We just turned and burned for a week straight. And now we're kind of, we're instituting it. We'll get crews out according to our sort of updated um, infectious diseases measures. And right now we are sort of in that hold pattern being resilient, self-care for our crews and our admin staff, limiting you know exposure as we can and being ready to move in any direction. Because right now, Mike, I'd love to give you a great um, uh, prediction, but honestly, I have no idea, dude, it can go anyway, anyway. It's just so unknown. Is, is there anything that people could do for, you know, communities like yours? Is there any kind of, I mean, are, is your community good? Do you guys need help with anything? Like what, what can people do if anything? So for now, honestly, the best way to help your emergency services who might be working constantly, like just call after call after call is really taking that accurate assessment of where you are with your health and really just trying to go that, that trying to escape, escape the middleman. And so if you're feeling symptomatic, talk to your provider, really use, utilize that, the, the technology that we have to minimize exposure to other people and get on those telemedicine calls, uh, call your provider, get checked up. Don't avoid doing that. Definitely do that if you have your concern and really, really only utilize emergency services if you need them. And we will come at any, you know, as quickly as we can, as soon as we can. We haven't been affected by it, but we don't know where this is going to go. So really all of us, all of us as a community being more resilient uh, and not falling victim to that panic, right? We talk about this all the time, that fear is the mind killer, um, that we kind of be okay with a little bit of distress, really having a good uh, idea about who you are, where you are, and what symptoms you're feeling, and stay in contact with your primary care providers and your urgent care centers and your uh, tele- telehealth providers and using those services before making the decision to expose more people. I like that, man, because what you basically just said, if you're taking care of yourself, you're taking care of your first responders, which is a absolutely, which is a big deal. Um, I just got a text literally 10 seconds ago while you were talking from a buddy of mine who's a police officer in Northern California, and they went to a dead body call this morning, and they found out the guy had the coronavirus, so they quarantined all the officers that were involved, a total of four. And so I could see how this could complicate the the issues of that that just exist within the virus with the stuff that we've been talking about and it's like it's like man i've never until i started talking to you about it which you know my my background is in emergency response and crisis management i never mm-hmm. thought that there would be a consideration of 
because I'm I'm thinking first responders, I'm thinking about security. But now mm-hmm. security is compromised via the virus. Mm-hmm. And and even if it's not, even if it's just a protocol and they're not even exposed to the virus, the more first responders we take out of the fight because of their, you know, whether it's deliberate arrival or inadvertent arrival or inadvertent exposure, the more that we potentially hurt the the structure that protects us all. Because I mean, you guys are the first response to everything that's bad that's happening, period. Um, and it's not just the virus that's a problem. Exactly, Mike. But it, again, this isn't any, realistically, dude, this isn't anything that you talk about constantly, being your own first response. And that means taking care of your own resilience. And that means picking and, and being very, very intentional about the information that you choose to sort of incorp- incorporate into your understanding of what's going on. And then, Really asking yourself the question, do I need to go out and expose myself? Do I need to do I need to go to the doctor and get checked out? Or do I really need to call emergency services? All of those things you might need to do, but really being resilient and and being okay with a little bit of distress and a little bit of living in that gray area because there are so many things that we don't know. So it, it, again, Mike, it's just it just really isn't anything different than we've talked about you know, several times before, it's just, we just need to pick up the pace a little bit. Man, man, Jeff, do you have, please tell me you do, but do you have any blogs or do you have any sources for information of the things that you put out? Is there any kind of resource for that, for your own personal output of this kind of information? Um, so eventually we will put all of our sort of, uh, trainings and, uh, you know, the resilience type stuff, on what have you ever done flipped classrooms mike i haven't i've heard of it though okay so basically that's me talking into a camera with a sort of powerpoint that goes in and out um and giving the lesson and then uh you know i might go to to you know whatever fire department and sort of we they they attend that virtual lecture so you can look at it as many times as you want with in whatever place you want um, and uh, how often you want and then ask questions, right? We'll, we'll get together for a little bit. And so we'll have all of those modules like trauma and empathy and suicide and, and uh, resilience, grit and flourishing and uh, uh, this sort of response to infectious diseases. We'll have all eventually all of those things on, on flipped classroom. So you can basically attend a lecture for free and then um, any of my documents, because I do work for a public entity, and I know this this phrase is weird, uh, I do believe in the communism science, meaning that anything that I build, I mean, yeah, we do gather uh, primary data from firefighters, and, and it still applies. But anything that I build scientifically is also built off of other people's work. So it is my responsibility, at least in my opinion, to make it available to you and and to be available to answer some questions. And so any of this stuff, man, I'll, I'll, it, it will be publicly available. It's just, you know, right now we're we're dealing with a with a response. And so, you know, the best way right now is you and I talking and you know and let, and giving it to other people, and they can build off of that. Absolutely. I was just going to say the default is this at this platform and. Uh, if you guys are trying to educate others, just continue to spread the word using this link uh, and the share, which you could share on iTunes, Luminary, Spotify, and uh, wherever else you guys hear this. Jeff, I want to I want to thank you, man, for taking the time for being on the front lines, doing what you do. You're you're a you're a veteran, and I know you don't live off your veteran service, um, but thank you for your service to the country, and thank you for your service to the community, and thank you for taking the time to share all this information today. 
Mike, I can't, uh, I can't tell you how much I do appreciate your continuous effort to grow and, and to, to put out great information for folks and to be there for people. You do, you do such an amazing job at, 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 at doing that, even though I know for a fact you're running around with your hair caught on fire most days. And, <laughs> Every <laughs> um, day. <laughs> I know, I know you are brother and I know how much work you do and I, and I do appreciate it. So let's keep this again. If, if you and I can keep this going, this, this, this idea that professionals from different areas meet and work together because realistically we have the same goal and you and I are much stronger together than we are apart. We just keep this going and hopefully more people do the same. Yeah. I'm looking forward to, it cause I, I'm, I was just going to ask you that we need to do an update to this every couple of weeks. And if you're uh, time allows it, man. I'd, I'd love to do this again and just keep people informed and and reminding them uh, even outside of what's going on specifically with the uh, specifics of the virus about resilience and psychology, physiologically, everything that you're talking about because it's so important, man. It is, man. Thank you so it much. Is. Thank you so much, brother. I'll talk to you soon. Likewise. Thank you, Mike. 